I'm sure you haven't heard a lot of examples of people who started living in a homestead in an idyllic location and then gave up that lifestyle to move to the suburbs. But that's literally what I did in the last two years. So let me start from the beginning. This is Regenerative Skills, the podcast helping you to learn the skills and solutions to create an abundant and connected future. I'm your host, Oliver Goshen. For regular listeners of the Abundant Edge podcast from previous seasons will know that I started the show when I was helping my colleagues to build a demonstration farm and permaculture homestead in the highlands of rural Guatemala on the shores of Lake Atitlan in a Mayan village of Cachiquel speakers. And my goodness, there were some incredible challenges. We ended up building most of the bamboo house during the rainy season and I was camping under the roof before the walls were filled in and we were cooking out of our tool shed and there were just so many crazy challenges along the way but i loved it i loved every minute of it i mean there were definitely difficult times but it felt like it was the lifestyle that i wanted to be building for myself and my crew and being involved with a community in a way that i just hadn't been able to invest in in previous projects in my life And it was difficult for me to give that up, but I'm really happy that I did because I was able to come here to the suburbs of Barcelona. It's a beautiful region of Spain and start a brand new life with the woman that I love. But at the moment, we live in a small apartment about 30 minutes outside of Barcelona, not too far from kind of more rural areas and close to the mountains. There's some really beautiful parts around here. But it's still limiting. I'm used to having a larger garden and planting more of my food, feeling a sense of independence for some of my consumption, and it's something that I've always wanted to continue to expand upon. Now this transition and trying to figure out how my skill set can fit in this new environment has gotten me thinking about a good friend of mine who I actually met in person for the first time in Guatemala. Now Zach Lokes is the author of two of some of my favorite books, including The Permaculture Market Garden, and his new volume, The Edible Ecosystem Solution. Now, Zach has quite a wide range of experience and has worked on larger farms, including market gardens in Canada, but in his newer book, focuses more on the urban and the suburban environment and how you can create edible ecosystems just about anywhere and even in the smallest spaces. Zach is an educator, designer, and grower who specializes in edible ecosystem design through landscaping and education. He consults widely with homes, farms, colleges, schools, and municipalities all across Canada and the United States, and through many biomes from Guatemala, like where we met, in South Africa to the Yukon and even Mongolia. But edible ecosystems kind of sounds like a fancy word for a garden or a farm, right? Like, I think the key thing is understanding that um, ecosystems are biodiverse. You don't find any sort of ecological landscape that isn't diverse, right? So a farm can be diverse, but it can also be a monoculture. And um, a yard can be diverse, but it can also be a monoculture. Um, Or even if it's not a monoculture and someone says, well, we do have some different species on the farm. Um, Okay, are they grown in blocks where you have, you know, an acre in carrots and then an acre in cover crop and it's organically managed? And this is great, like having crop rotations and having cover crops that serve as, you know, also green manures and all the other, you know, organic principles. But ultimately, they're still being grown in a way where they're segregated and ecosystems aren't. Ecosystems are always integrated and they're diverse 
Uh, and so this is a key component to understand in the design process that I like to, to, to share, you know? So it really is about that diversity and then the connection between things. Like a, a zoo is very diverse, but it's hardly a, a thriving ecosystem because there's no interactions, right? That's a key element to it. I like that. I've never, I never thought of that analogy, but yeah, I mean, they're, they're all fenced off from each other, you know, which is good, I guess, in a zoo context, otherwise the lions would go eat everything, but, but that's the cycle of life. We need that, you know, we need that movement and that, and that companionship. Well, this is why I'm really glad that I reached out to you because, you know, you come from especially the, the farming background that you have, the market gardening and how I met you in the beginning. And now you sort of turn this lens into more of the urban landscape and the suburban areas. Tell me about what transfers well and what is, you know, uniquely different about those human settlements. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I mean, I think like what's cool is the scalable nature of ecosystems. So I think, you know, I had this sort of eureka moment in my own kind of understanding of ecology um, where it's not even that I didn't understand it before, but it's like I re-understood it from a certain point of view. And that's that, you know, landscapes, ecological landscapes, biomes, you know, whatever scale you want to understand the biodiversity that is our, our world ecosystems uh, is, is completely scalable. And, um, you know, one moment I had was when I was working in the boreal forest, um, you know, many years ago. And I saw this, this log that had, had been lying for many years uh, in, a, um, in a burned forest stand. And if you looked inside the log, there was this microcosm of fungi growing around the inside in these concentric circles. And there was spider webs and there was all these critters like decaying it. And on the top of the log, there was like ferns that were starting to grow in the decaying wood on top. And, you know, it was even, you know, serving as a nurse log for um, trees that had germinated in and around the log. And understand that that was an entire ecosystem right there. And thinking, wait, this ecosystem right here, this new kind of emerging ecosystem um, has all the benefits, all the functionality, all the understanding that we have about ecosystem dynamics right in this micro landscape. Maybe it's about 25 square feet. And the same occurs in any spot of land. If we look at a spot of land, whether it's just a section of garden bed in, in, your, in your garden or a section of field in your larger farm crop rotation, or a section of lawn in the suburbs or a section of park in an urban area, all of these have the potential to be micro ecosystems with all those benefits. And then when we put them all together, we have big benefits and they don't necessarily have to be converting an entire park or an entire lawn or an entire farm because many small spots still are impacting um, the, the global system for those sorts of ecosystem benefits we love, like the creation of oxygen and carbon sequestration and the production of soil and, you know, habitat for endangered species and, and, and especially even the things that we really want to see immediately in our communities uh, in these trying times, which is food production right there on these trees, you know, food security from pears and cherries and, and all that. So, you know, that's where I kind of really started to get really interested again um, in these in micro landscapes was, you know, looking, um, 
back at that understanding, but then to kind of tie back into your question, when I was on book tour a lot for the permaculture market garden, I was just seeing so much underutilized land in little pockets and communities and, and seeing the, all that potential that could go into this underutilized land, which is everywhere. You know, it's really a blank page. So given that there's this blank page of underutilized land all around us, tell me how we can get started in selecting a spot and prepare it for planting. Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, essentially, uh, this is an extension of the permabed system by looking micro scale at it and then building on it in a way that really makes sense, that's modular. And, you know, the first thing you want to do is find a piece of land that you're deciding that you want to transition from lawn or from grass or from, you know, whatever it is that you want uh, in turning it into an edible landscape or a garden. And I, I call it a garden spot, you know, it's a spot, it's a piece, it's 25 square feet, but it could be a five by hundred foot bed. It's the same principles of design. It's just in this case, we're talking about the micro micro landscape. I work by a philosophy that all of our gardening sites should be in permanent raised beds or perma beds or built up mounds because it automatically is going to improve drainage. And you should be integrating organic matter because that's automatically going to improve soil aggregation, soil fertility. So it's almost like a um, a design fits all approach, you know, and this is really like, like this is the methodology that, you know, is coming out of the Edible Ecosystem Solution book. And this is the methodology that's coming out of the Ecosystem U uh, Academy that we just launched. It's that there are these solutions that can be applied in a lot of different places in the same manner. and that And that's because... You know, it doesn't matter like if a site is got poor drainage or has good drainage, they're both going to benefit from this. So you don't have to be as concerned about really knowing everything you might need to know. Dig down, turn that soil, dig down again and turn that soil, right? So you're actually doing that double dig. You're digging, turning, and then digging again and turning. And add in, you know, compost or composted manure is even better. You know, um, I always drive around the countryside and look for um, farms where they have big piles of manure that look like they've just been sitting for a while, like that they might be occasionally turning it to keep the weeds down and things like that, but they're, but they're not really using it. And this is usually a red flag, a green flag, excuse me, of, of um, that they probably be fine to sell it to you. Um, but I like to say, you know, four, six, eight, you know, 12 inches, depending on what you're doing. Um, and that creates the raised bed. Okay, perfect. So now we have our garden plot selected. We've double dug the soil to loosen it up and added lots of compost and organic matter, mounded it up for better drainage. I'm ready to get planting. Now, since we're aiming to create a functioning ecosystem, shouldn't I just scatter the seeds and plantings around randomly to mimic a wild ecosystem? I really like to push back against this, the design philosophy that sometimes is starting to creep out into, you know, the permaculture world um, of being very wild in how we go about planting and being very wild in how we go about uh, designing. Um, I really, really don't think design uh, is about being wild. I think design's about being organized and then plants will be wild but they're wild within the organization that allows you to care for them and to get them established um, so that you can really succeed. 
because going out and throwing a bunch of random seeds into your yard often won't result in very much. And planting fruit trees willy-nilly across your property won't result in very much. Got it. So even though we might let the plants grow a bit wildly as they mature, we have to start with an organized design if we want to promote fast growth, get a better yield, and create for easier maintenance. But how do I go about selecting plants from all of the tons of varieties available out there? Select. Sometimes I just like to think, okay, well, um, you know, one of the best things to do is to pick plants that have different shapes and forms and different sizes at maturity, because that's like a, a primary thing. And of course, all the inspiration for the book and, and, and this design work and the design work of so many great designers out there comes from looking at nature, right? And like, natural ecosystems and woodlands are one of my big inspiration draws and prairies they're layered they you know they they have big trees and they have medium trees and they have shrubs and they have bushes and they have little creeping ground covers and like more upright herbs and so one of the first questions you know in terms of finding companion plants is like well what layers are you going to represent and you know the sunnier spot the sunnier your spot is and the more spot space for spots you have the more layers you can include in your design but you know your design should at least have three layers you know that's the rule of three right you should have at least three layers and every single spot needs to have a key species which means something that you're focused on and then it should probably have a couple companions that you choose for it and it needs to have a ground cover and then you can get into like um more intricate design of trying to, I always say ecosystem designs about form, function, and potential. So, you know, that's the form. And then you can say, now I'm going to do the next layer of design where I'm going to look for function. And I might specifically choose plants in this case for a specific function. An example of that would be my key species is a Asian pear tree. And I'm going to pick a plant that attracts pollinators uh, ahead of when my Asian pear is going to flower. So they're already in the neighborhood. That's designing for function because you can find plants that attract pollinators and that's a part of ecosystem. That's one of those functions that happens in the diversified wild fruit forests of Eurasia is that there's all these flowering plants. And so there's always pollinators in the neighborhood for each other. And they're all, that's all helping each other out in that sort of way. And so, and again, you know, this is different than symbiosis where plants are specifically evolving a relationship to help each other. It's a different sort of thing. That's not the same kind of companionship as you might see be between mycorrhizal fungi and a plant where they're literally exchanging and they've evolved in symbiosis. You know, this is different. This is companionship by um, dynamics and companionship by proximity and companionship by, you know, ecosystem function, you know? So we can do all that on a small on a small thing. So, you know, the takeaway is, you know, if you're designing a, a five by five spot or a five by 20 garden bed, you know, pick pick a few key species or one key species that is what you want to grow for a specific re reason. Make sure it's hardy to your climate, that it'll survive your coldest average temperatures in winter and that it's suitable to your specific soil, that it is a, a plant that will work in your specific sun regime like whether or not you have a full sun partial shade or full shade site um and then once you do that pick your companions first based on their layering and then based on their function 
And then potential is about understanding where your micro landscape is going and understanding that ecosystems build potential, you know? And sometimes people talk about, oh, well, there's really no such thing as a climax community in ecosystems. There's a lot of different theories about this in terms of ecology. Um, and when I say ecosystems build potential, I'm not really referring to the fact that like they're going to reach some climax community or that ecosystems necessarily only diversify over time. Like this is not a unidirectional thing of constant potential building. But this is the fact that if you take a piece of land that's just in lawn and you integrate some fruit trees, let's say you take the, uh, uh, you know, a hedge or a, a piece of land that could be a hedge at the front of a property that's like, you know, five by 15 feet or 20 feet, the front of your average, you know, suburban property or something. And you have it in Justin Lawn right now, you know, and you put in uh, a couple plum, plum trees and a couple pear trees and, you know, some raspberries and some ground covers. Maybe you have in the shady side, you have like some perennial violets or self-seeding violets and you have some chives in there and you have a little bit of asparagus and, you know, have some different variety in there placed in an organized fashion, but it's diversified. You're building potential. You're building potential because now you have a lot of different roots that are opening pore space in the soil in different ways. That's potential for more air and water uh, cycling and storage. You're building macro pore space in your soil, which allows drainage. You're building potential for better drainage, potential that will be seen in the next big flood year. You're building potential for water storage by opening up micro pore space in the soil that allows your soil to drain through the macro pore space, which is replaced by air, but retain water in the micro pore space. So that's building potential for the next drought. You're, 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 you're yielding um, uh, diversified leaf litter and twigs and root sheddings and bark sheddings and rotten material, and you're building the potential of soil organic matter. You're increasing soil organic matter and you're built, you know, even if it doesn't build it in some years or, in, you know, maybe it's being burned up faster, but you have the potential for it. Awesome. Okay, that takes so much of the guesswork out of planting by working through the form, function, and potential metrics that you'd want on your site. Now that we have it all planted, let's talk about the ongoing stewardship that these systems need and also how you can use them to inspire others. I sort of break down stewardship in this book into um, three parts. And, and the first is to exemplify, to set an example by, um, you know, growing a, a garden, planting a fruit tree, set an example of the sort of landscape, the sort of um, habitat, I like to think of it as human habitat, really, that you want to live in. And the second one is um, mentorship. And, you know, that sort of stewardship where you're helping someone else uh, learn how to plant like you did, showing them what you are, are doing so that they can mimic that success and bring it home into their, their yard or their community if they're from another community. And then the third type of stewardship is sponsorship, where you're directly supporting their own stewardship activities. And this could be monetary sponsorship, or this could be provisioning them with seeds and suckers and scions from your edible ecosystem in your yard. And through this stewardship, we can create great change because we can inspire people by um, the smells and the colors and the tastes of our yards 
um, and our neighborhood, you know, edible laneways or bike lanes or whatever has been done. I mean, we were talking earlier about what does it look like? Well, it looks like, you know, a fruit tree in every yard and maybe the pollinator for your plum is in your neighbor's yard. And maybe, you know, the big massive berry patch that everyone harvests berries from is along, you know, the the, the fence line of a, of a football field. And um, in another yard, there's there's bees but they're moving throughout the whole neighborhood, pollinating and getting nectar sources. So it's it's an e- the neighborhood's this ecosystem, but we create that bigger picture by creating little spots that influence more spots around them. You know, any square of lawn that becomes an edible ecosystem that then has the capacity to help influence around it. And that's a true community effort, but one where, you know, it's simple in its origin. Why not plant a pear tree? I challenge you to plant a fruit tree. I challenge you, everyone, to plant one fruit tree and a high impact tree, a tree that's where people live and it's getting some care and not becoming a gardener, not, not saying I'm going to you know, be on a hundred mile diet and not saying I'm going to only eat from my yard and not saying I'm going to forgo all, you know, imported food and, uh, and I'm going to, you know, but just plant one tree and care for it and and for those who who don't have access to any land at all you know help sponsor them to plant a tree um help organize for community plantings but but take up that call of action that says you know every tree counts and with billions of people on this planet that's billions of high impact trees not not little tiny you know saplings planted to reforest you know monocultures in the boreal forest for future clear cuts you know and not little tiny trees planted in the tropics or other areas as part of a, a you know a carbon credit you know concept but plant a tree that will produce fruits or nuts or a berry bush or you know herbs or a five by five micro edible ecosystem in your yard, in a city park, along a bike lane, um, as a spot along a hedge on a farm, you know, on your land or a neighbor's or a friend's or community land, but everybody can either physically do this or help sponsor for those who can't. And this is big change. This is big change. This is a lot of fruit. And and then we become less dependent on these corporations and these imports and this, this whole system that we can't even really fathom because we're starting to build real food security right where we live, you know? And so whatever the reason is, you know, are you, you, are you doing it because you think it's cool, because you want the fruit, because you're a diehard environmentalist, because you're a nerdy scientist, because you're into outdoor education, because you just like getting muddy, I do, you know, but just plant a tree, you know, and, and help people plant a tree and make it a high impact tree. That's massive results. And a single pear tree is able to, you know, yield hundreds of twigs that can be cut as scion wood to make more pear trees. That's massive potential. Now that's hundreds of pear trees that can grow to produce 300 pounds of fruit each. That is massive potential. And it goes right in hand with one of the concepts that I've known for a long time, even working with larger ecosystems, is that small spaces are not only easier to manage, but easier to manage intensively. 
you can grow so much in a small, highly cultivated and stewarded piece of land in comparison to what you could do in broad acreage when you can't give the same amount of attention and care that you would to a smaller plot. I really hope that this episode has inspired you to look at the small and underutilized spaces around your own home and in your own community in a different way, and hopefully even get out there and plant something or support someone who is starting to plant an edible ecosystem right where you live. That's our show for this week. Special thanks to Zach Lokes. You can find more about Zach's work at his personal website, ZachLokes.com, EcosystemSolutionsInstitute.com, and also on Instagram by searching his name, and of course, the book, The Edible Ecosystem Solution. Thanks also to our sponsors, New Society Publishers, who also publish Zach's book, and which I'll be giving away free copies for for the members on our community on the Discord server. Original music by Cheel, God Mode, and Offshade. Remember that it's free to join the conversation. You can find the link on the homepage at regenerativeskills.com and share stories, knowledge, and encouragement with others all around the world. If you want to take a massive leap forward in your learning, you can also gain access to the note packet that goes along with this episode and all the previous episodes, or to join our bi-monthly regenerative skill building calls where we tap into the community and the experts who can answer your specific questions and help you to develop your projects in land restoration, community building, regenerative agriculture, and much more. So be sure to check out the various subscription packages through our Patreon link on the website. Now until next episode, I'll look forward to seeing you on the chats and on the skill building calls. Take care.